Welcome to the ACOFP Student Podcast, a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. Hello and welcome to ACOFP Student Podcast. I'm Katie Hawks and I'm the Vice President of the National Student Executive Board. Today, we're so excited to be talking with Dr. Jan Zirin. For those of you who don't know the lovely and talented Dr. Zirin, she served as president of the ACOFP in 2009 and currently works as an associate professor of family medicine at LMU DCOM. Today, we're going to learn about how she chose family medicine and how she utilizes OMT in her practice. Thank you for being here with us, Dr. Zirin. Well, thank you so much for having me. That's great. We're excited to learn about the advice you have to offer. So first of all, for our listeners, we kind of learn about... We want to learn about how you came to the specialty of family medicine. Well, kind of like the wand choice in Harry Potter, it chose me. I'm just going to say that in my day, not not we're not going to talk about how long ago that was. (laughs) uh, A rotating internship was required after you graduated from med school. Well, I loved every rotation that I was doing that year, but I finally settled on maybe surgery was where I wanted to go. That was my specialty. But there were some shifts in my personal life that changed that path. So I returned to Phoenix and I worked a year in the emergency department of the hospital where I had trained my internship. I realized I didn't care for night shifts. And I really, really wanted follow up on my cases that I had seen. And about that time, I was invited to join a really busy family medicine clinic that was right near the hospital. Probably the best decision I ever made because that's where I've been. That's all she wrote. I got to do everything that I did like to do. Awesome. So you kind of had a a whirlwind journey to it, it sounds like. You started with surgery and then moved to ER and then eventually family kind of won your heart. So that's awesome to hear. And I know a lot of, I've heard a lot of stories about other people who, you know, they thought they might end up in med peds or a somewhat related specialty, but then they realize family kind of has everything they have to offer. Everything. Yeah, I got to do it. So as um, previous president of ACOFP and being involved in ACOFP, what's your favorite aspect of being in the ACOFP? When I was an intern. Mitch Kasavak, who later became an AOA president, was the DME during my internship. So upon my return to Phoenix, after I worked the ER and I got into family medicine, he became my mentor. And he was the wind beneath my wings, so to speak, and invited me to join ACOFP. Well, he ultimately sponsored me to become a fellow in the ACOFP. So when I look back at all the meetings that I had attended, and then you asked me to decide what was my favorite part, Mm -hmm. I decided it, it was not unlike the camaraderie of our staff in the hospital doctor's dining room, only on a national level. And so I think the best part for me was that ACFP offered a reconnection of um, friendships at a national level. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's something, I mean, being so early on in my journey through ACOFP was just the family feel of it and building those friendships. Everyone is very helpful and it's not, it's competitive to the point we want to make each other better, but it's not cutthroat. So that's something I really enjoy about family medicine. So that's great to hear. Um, so currently, what type of practice or academic setting do you work to kind of let students know what you're involved in currently? 
Well, you say currently, but um, gosh, for over 30 years, I was in the clinic setting in mm-hmm. uh, Phoenix. And in those first few years, I did it all. I delivered babies. I did office surgery. I was first assist on hospital surgery. I did inpatient care, outpatient care, nursing home care. I did it all. And over time, for various reasons, um, most of those disappeared so that I ultimately became clinical practice only. Well, I was a preceptor all those years. Mm -hmm. And students I would have for a month at a time. And then when I had the opportunity to join LMU-DCOM with part-time clinical practice, it was like a dream come true. I could still see patients and teach more than one student at a time. And that's where I've been since 2012. That's awesome to hear that you've had such like a broad range of practice for being in surgery and delivering babies. Um, do you still use any of that in clinic now, as in some of the, um, I so to say, some of the ideals and um, I guess philosophy from that whole sort of picture that you got? Well, wow. the clinical practice is community Mm-hmm. patients. And so it's still, although it's part-time, you know, four half days, it's um, it's still just some OMM and some, you know, taking care of illness and taking mm-hmm. care of chronic diseases. But so I don't do the OB. I don't do the surgery mm-hmm. hospital work like I did, but mm-hmm. it's still there. And uh, students get to rotate through the office Awesome. When it happens. Can you talk a little bit about um, your experience in academia? I know you said you transferred work at LMD Common, now you're part-time in the clinic. So how has that been for you? And how do you recommend students get involved in academia if that's something they're interested in? Well, because I was a preceptor in Phoenix for so many years, um, and then I would see the students also in ACUFP. I was constantly around students in a teaching mode, if you will, and they saw how I was involved locally and nationally in both leadership and in teaching. And if a student showed absolutely any interest in the uh, academia or teaching or leadership, I'd jump on that and I would encourage and support them and that they too could do this. Now at DCOM, I'm the faculty sponsor for the School Family Medicine Organization slash ACOFP. Mm-hmm. So I've had an opportunity to work with more than just one student at a time. And again, as soon as anybody shows interest, I'm encouraging, I support. And students demonstrate that by teaching and tutoring and becoming fellows in OMM. And when they show an interest like that, I, I still like to say, you know, you too could do this. You could be in academia. I love it. I really... I still have students who've graduated that I'm I'm getting to encourage as well. That's awesome. Um, I think even on my board calls, I heard Dr. Radhanu talking about how you had influenced her at ACOFP. So, uh, and I've been influenced by you. So I really appreciate all that you've done to help students uh, along the years kind of make our way in family medicine. So thank you for Dr. that. Dr. is one of my good memories of being at an ACOFP thing where we had a table, table set up and she was at my table and... I, I guess one doesn't often know how much influence they have over people till they're told later, mm-hmm. you know, you changed my life or something like that. And she is absolutely one who's made sure I knew that what I had said made a difference for her. Mm-hmm. 
For sure. Um, so you kind of address how you do OMM in the clinic. Can you tell us about how you, your interest in OMT kind of started to grow? Well, it was funny how I even knew about it. Um, I was in Oklahoma City and doing cancer research, waiting for the right time financially and, and a husband that was in law school to even apply to med school. And the administrator of the cancer research came to me and said, I don't really think you should be a doctor, an MD. I'm sorry. And I said, what? I was like a little wet hen. I was like, I've wanted to be a doctor since God knows when, you know? And he said, no, no, no. I don't mean don't be a doctor. I mean, don't, you should be a DO. And I went, a what? He said an osteopath. And I'm like, osteo what? He introduced me to Bob Jones, who was the executive director of uh, Oklahoma Osteopathic Association, and then several DOs who were involved in the new osteopathic medical school there. And they they are the ones who explained it to me. So when the time was right, I applied and I got into the osteopathic school. And uh, I learned it because I needed to, but it really wasn't until I got into that busy clinic after the emergency department that I could use it. And it was an osteopathic hospital and all the DOs did manipulation. That was when I learned to love it and really how to use it. And so it wasn't until I was in practice, actually. That's awesome. Um, I know everyone has a different journey to it. Some get it in medical school where they they figure out their kind of role in that, but it's great that you got to experience that while in clinic. Um, how often do you use OMM in your practice, would you say, on what percentage of patients? Well, it varies. It, I'm not one who uses it on every patient. I I probably should or could, but I would only do it when I thought it seemed right. And I... I think there were times, especially in Phoenix, where it was up to 40% of my practice. What happened was there were um, lawyers that used me for their um, motor vehicular accident victims to take care of them. Uh, But it was still, I've used it even in the clinic in Tennessee, some, and I've had patients that would actually make appointments just for me to do manipulation on them here in Tennessee. That's awesome. Um, What is the most rewarding part of using OMM in your practice and on your patients? Well, mostly it's just seeing patients get better. One of the attorneys sent me a young gal who'd been in a car wreck. This was in Phoenix, by the way. And she still had pain despite seeing MDs and getting physical therapy. And it was in her right kind of neck shoulder area. And I listened to her story and realized it was from the mechanism of injury from her car wreck. It was a first rib that had elevated and never had been fixed. So on our first treatment, I shared with her that I was going to try to fix what I thought had been pulled out of place. And I used my fingers as quotes, you know, pulled out of place. Mm -hmm. And it popped back in place and she was instantly pain-free. And she just stood up, turned around and did that, like that emoji with the big open eyes and like, Whoa. Red, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she said, why did he wait three years to send me to you? Mm-hmm. So it's just seeing results that that is exciting for me. For sure. And yeah. exactly. And it's sometimes, you know, we just think of things that, you know, 
some other people might not think of. And the first rib we kind of always learn is just one of those things that can cause a lot of problems. We just don't always think about it. So that's, that's an awesome story to, to relay that message. Um, what is your favorite OMT modality that you like to use on patients? I, I know that you use different um, techniques for different patients, but is there a certain technique you kind of enjoy more and gravitate towards? Well, my training was HVLA and pretty much only HVLA. There, I, I can't tell you that I remember much else from if we did have it. And that's not for everybody. That's I got pretty good at it after I was in the clinic because the doc that I was working with was uh, big in HVLA too. And so the patients that I saw when I was covering for him would say, come on, doc, you can do it. But then they had Dr. Lawrence Jones come to our hospital and give a weekend course in the 90-second Jones release technique. So I got a chance to learn some of those for the patients that HVLA wouldn't work. But but for the most part, it's HVLA. It's, um, yeah, I, I really like seeing more the gratification of more instant release or relief mm-hmm. is my, my preference. For sure. Um, what advice do you have for students who are tentative to use HVLA? Because that's something we learned later on in our first year, and people are just intimidated, especially in dealing with the cervical spine. So do you have yeah. any advice for that? Yeah. I um, There was a story of, of a physician at our hospital who had uh, – young gal that he did cervical HVLA and she died and his office was right across from the emergency department and it was just a turned out to be a little known aberrant vasculature that she had that mm. it ruptured and she bled to death so I was very good with thoracic and lumbar and other areas and extremely tentative with cervical for actually several years so when students were learning, I understood the trepidation that faculty had with teaching it as students could um, cause damage if they didn't know their strength or didn't position correctly. So it's mostly be very cognizant that is this the right technique for this patient and it's finesse, not force. Mm-hmm. It's being very careful. Yes, I agree with that 100%. And it's definitely learning the positioning more than anything. It's not about the thrust itself. If you get a good positioning, like you said, you don't need, you know, 20 pounds of force or anything or to, no. to rip their head off. So, And a lot of times with HVLA, if you get the patient relaxed, when I'm positioning them, things fall in place before I've even done a thrust of any sort. So it really is just getting it positioned and then things can happen. Do you have any tricks to get patients to relax, especially if they know a thrust is coming? Well, when I see students learn this, I see them follow step by step. I can literally almost imagine the them reading the instructions in their mind as they're mm-hmm. and they make the patient, their their classmate who they're working on, hold it and hold it. <laughs> and even I'm tightening up as I'm watching this. So I've always done, um, I'm going to call it massage, if you will, but it's, I'm loosening up the muscles and I'm talking to them and I'm getting them into and out of the position. They just don't know it. And sometimes I will ask them to, I'll distract them with, can you cross your legs? No, I don't like that. Would you uncross them? And while they're thinking about that, I can do the maneuver or I'll do a little muscle energy 
just a little bit as if I were going to only treat with muscle energy. Now, sometimes that would do it. And sometimes they would least suspect because they're busy waiting for the next push against my hand or put some pressure here or whatever. And then it can go. It can awesome. Go. So little tricks. Great. So how do you explain OMM to your patients, um, especially if they haven't had it before? Is there a certain way you like to explain it so they understand what you're about to do? Well, I had a little plastic skeleton named Oscar. And sometimes <laughs> I would show them on Oscar what I was talking about. Because if I just talk to someone who has no medical training about the sacrum, they just look at me like, uh-huh. <laughs> or that the pelvis has three joints and they're thinking, elbows and knees, but they're not realizing that there are three areas to work on. So I would do a lot of visual descriptions and I would talk about doors that don't hang right on their hinges and drawers that got stuck. I said they may look okay, but they don't work right. And and I would use a lot of things like words like it's hung up here. It's shifted a little bit. I'm not saying that it's dislocated, but it's not working right. It's not mm-hmm. sitting right. And I would like to use your muscles to put it back in position, or I'd like to get you to help me see if we can get this settled back in place. Those were the phrases that I think over the years I learned patients kind of went, oh, okay. And the funny thing was when people would say, I don't want any of that popping that some doctors do. And I'd be like, okay, no problem. So then I would do muscle energy. And of course, if something accidentally went into place with a noise, I'd go, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like I didn't do it. It just needed to fall back in place. Mm-hmm. But because I didn't scare them and I wasn't thrusting, I was either massaging or whatever. It, it, it was okay. Awesome. I've always loved your analogies, Dr. Zira, and you explained (laughs) it to a lay person very well, especially like medical students when we're first learning and have no concept of some of these terminologies. So it definitely was helpful when I was learning from you. Um, How do you explain OMM to your other professional colleagues if you've ever had to explain it to, say, an MD? I never did. You never did? I I just, it, it, number one, I was surrounded by mostly DOs for probably half my career. And then when we were joining hospitals that it were mixed staff, um, I don't think I did manipulation in the hospital, so I didn't have to explain it, uh, didn't need to. The only time that I would explain to professionals was if one of my patients that I was uh, explaining, they'd been in a car wreck and we were going to tell the jury why we they needed the treatment they did, I would take Oscar and I would explain to the jury not much differently than if I... Um, or as explaining it to the patient or to lay people, uh, just what happened in the car wreck and what I was trying to do. But yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I want to see Oscar and, and have you do a demonstration for me. I'm curious, but that's cool that you. So you've had to comment on jury cases and things like that, and still explain it to lay people, but a big group of lay people. So that's really mm-hmm. interesting. Um, how do you keep up to date with developments in OMM? Well, the cool thing is now I'm on faculty and I'm a table trainer, so I'm learning all kinds of things that the students are being taught now that I was not taught in my medical school, and it's beyond my Jones release techniques and muscle energy. Uh, I'm learning 
techniques that I didn't even particularly know existed. But our state organization in Arizona was really good when we'd have meetings about including and incorporating osteopathic techniques. And we had physicians who were teaching at the osteopathic medical schools there. So they would do demos or they would give lectures. ACUFP, we've incorporated nationally. Um, we have rooms were set apart. We have the workshops for those who are getting their certification. We have... Um, the other thing that I did when I was a preceptor, I would have students show me what they were learning. So I would say, you show me what they're teaching you now. Or I would ask them to work on a patient in the pa with the patient's approval. So I had a lot of different ways to keep up or to get on top of it. That's really interesting to like have the students teach back to you so you can learn something, but also they get the experience, you know, teaching um, OMM because that's kind of a difficult thing. Once you try to do it, you're like, oh, this isn't as easy as I thought to try to use the correct terminology and, and place. They had to explain it to me. They had to know it well enough, you know, see one, do one, teach one kind mm -hmm. of thing. But, but if I'd say, well, what are you learning in the um, school? And then they'd say, well, here's a patient with that. And they'd say, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, Let's go through it. So that's awesome. How do you recommend students continue their studies and practice of OVM after graduating medical school? Because you said you kind of, you know, picked it up when you were in a busy practice, but if for some reason they don't start in a busy practice or one that's strong in OMM, how do you recommend they keep up to date with well, OMM? I had the benefit of a partner who was a DO and he had done years of manipulation on his patients. And so by me being there, it was by default that I better know how to do it. <laughs> I better get good because the two of us actually had a very, very busy practice. It was wonderful. Um, there are, seems to be a lot of students who are not interested in OMM when they get out and they don't get the, um, they don't get to be a place where they can see it or teach it or use it. So I'm hoping that some of them are proactive and maybe will will be the ones that bring it to their residency training or go to a practice where they can uh, utilize it. If they could be close enough to a medical school to be a table trainer, they would keep it active and then they could not only teach the students, but they could use it in their practices. Again, we have our uh, ACUFP and in state organizations, if they have it, I know Tennessee now, we, we have table training in the meetings so that it helps. So if they could have a women afternoons mm -hmm. or organize uh, groups or I don't know, it's kind of hard if they're lonely yeah. out there, but, but I think being resourceful, there's apps that, that go through it. So, mm -hmm. and I know ACOFP has um, a video library of OMT that right. we could potentially have access to. And I think it's important that students, if they're interested, they kind of trailblaze their own way because you're not always going to get handed it, you know. And so I think that's kind of the beauty of it. You've been taught the basics. You just have to remember how to apply to make sure you're keeping patients safe along the way. So um, I agree with what you're saying about, you know, kind of looking for opportunities as they're presented, but then sometimes making your own. So um, you kind of talked about how you've never had to explain, you know, the concept of OMT to MDs, <laughs> but, and you've been in a very, you know, osteopathically strong, you know, um, practice and medical school, but some states aren't as, I don't want to say friendly, but not as open to the idea of OMM. So have you ever experienced any barriers as someone who utilizes OMM and as a DO in general? 
well, I paid to be a blonde for me. <laughs> and I'm just going to say I was probably oblivious if I did have barriers. I just kept on plotting. At one time, I was on the staff of five Phoenix hospitals, and I was in leadership. I was in um, on committees, both state and national level, and I worked alongside MDs later in those mixed staff hospitals. But it just seemed like I was able to climb through all those ladders and levels without obstruction. I don't know. That's great. No, I mean, that's awesome to hear. I know everyone's experience is a little different and maybe you just have the personality. You just kind of went with what you were dealt and um, moved your way on up. So that's great to hear. Um, So kind of moving on on a totally different note, um, because we're not taught a lot about billing in medical school. We get a brief introduction, but our real knowledge is really gained in residency. How did you learn to bill and get reimbursed for OMT? Well, I was in practice when there was rejection by insurance companies and then the AOA got involved and they were really good about helping us fight insurance companies. Um, when when I had a patient that had um, need of, well, there was an option for cranial for his misshapen head because he was a big kid and a small mom or one of those cranial helmets. Mm -hmm. Uh, The mom chose going to the doctor for the cranial, which worked beautifully. It took a few months, but it worked beautifully. But the insurance wasn't going to pay for it. So we wrote letters and we sent copies of the research that showed that this would manipulation would, the cranial manipulation would work for these infants. And ultimately they paid. So, In my practices, until I got here, we had what I called a billing babe. And she was the one who would code for us based on, she she would go to the classes and get the training. And so in all my practices, there was someone who knew how to code from our charts and they did the billing. And so ultimately what they had to train me to do was the correct documentation for the billing. So I really never did it myself. It was, it was done for me, but we had to have courses on it in our state organizations mm-hmm. and, and work with insurance companies. And Right. I think that's really important, the communication aspect of it. And then, like you said, having a, like a coding babe just to kind of help you out um, is really critical because we can't do it all. We have to be able to delegate to some people. And that's awesome that she was able to teach you the documentation that she needed to bill correctly for you. Great. Um, so just to kind of summarize uh, this podcast, we really appreciate you coming and talking about family medicine and your experience in OMM. That was kind of our goal to kind of combine the two since we're osteopathic family medicine physicians. My last question is what final tips do you have for students pursuing family medicine in general? Oh <laughs> I know it's very broad and open-ended. So, <laughs> Well, as probably it should be. I will tell you that I am so proud that I'm a DO. I am so happy that I chose this path, if you will. I am I'm delighted that in my 40 years of, of doing what I've done in my career that I feel satisfied that I've been able to do manipulation, do OMM. I know that in the, 
early in one of the clinics, a resident from our hospital did a survey of patients in some of the family medicine clinic waiting rooms. And one of the questions to the patients was, what do the letters DO stand for? Well, I was oblivious to this survey. I, we had given permission, but I didn't know what was on it. And later he came to me and said, Dr. Zirin, I just have to tell you, your patients thought DO stood for doctor's office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> So, you know, let's try as hard as we have with the AOA and the ASOFP to get out. What does a DO, what does a DO do? How are we different? How are we the same? Why see a DO? I don't know. I think that's just going to be individual. Mm -hmm. uh, you make, make whatever you need to make out of who you are and what you're doing. I know that it takes a lot of knowledge to be able to handle whatever walks through that door as a family doc, you're going to get a variety of cases. And I think the important thing is to know what you can take care of and take care of well and know when you need to refer. And if you can create good referral base, then you're going to have an excellent practice, so to speak, because you work as a team. Um, Best part about family medicine is making the relationships with the patients and their families. Mm -hmm. It was, it really helps to know more about the patient by knowing about their family. And when you take care of, <clears throat> excuse me, first the kids and then mom comes and then she drags the husband in and then grandma comes to visit. Then grandma stays in the area and then you get grandma and whatever. And then when you start, when your practice is long enough, taking care of the kids, kids, that's impressive. It really, really is heartwarming to be a family doc and take care of families. And I loved that from my training, I got to see some really screwy things that I thought I would never see again. But over my years, I have, and some people were astounded that I could diagnose what I did, and I would shrug my shoulders, and it was like, well, I saw it in my training, you know, it was something strange, but I loved weird things like that. I call them zero and zeros. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. So, yeah. keeping your eyes open for um, t taking care of your patients, I guess, would be the most important tip. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that heartwarming um, close of this podcast, Dr. Zirin, because I think that's one of the things we all love about family medicine is the continuity of care and the ability to work with patients of all ages and really get to know them and, you know, the environment they're in. Um, so thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us in the midst of coronavirus and everything going on and sharing your advice on family medicine, OMM. It's really been helpful. Um, and oh, thank you thank to our you. listeners. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we've, I've learned a lot, and I know our listeners will learn a lot from your advice and experience. And thank you to our listeners for listening to another one of our Family Medicine OM podcast. Be sure to check out for future episodes on the ACOFP website. The ACOFP Student Podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACOFP, please visit www.acofp.org.
Looking for more resources on OMT? Visit ACOFP's OM Teaching at www.acofpomteaching.com and ask your institution if they subscribe so you can have access to over 150 OMT videos and support materials.